You're listening to Fighting for the Faith, and my name is Chris Rosebro. A little bit of a Manic Monday moment there. I wrote that for myself. Manic... Oh, what's this? Check that out. <laughs> John just handed me a baseball card. On the baseball card is uh, John Rosebro from the Los Angeles Dodgers, number eight, catcher. What year is this one? It's in 1964. All right. Four years before I was born. So I, you, you make me feel younger than you. <laughs> You're listening to Fighting for the Faith, and I am Chris Rosebro. We're always sinners. Hello. <laughs> All right. Technical problems today abound. New computer, and uh, I was having problems getting it to uh, go to the right output. So we had to start a little bit... Uh, just a couple minutes late. So th- thanks for sticking with us today as we work through our technical issues. Uh, today we've got a good show lined up for you. got a good program. We're going to do some listener email. We're going to announce the winner of the, uh, name, the name That Pastor conference uh, con- uh, contest. The contest that we had, uh, gosh, it was a little over a week ago now. I read an article on the air. name of the article was, Learn to Love Yourself. Because that's what the Bible's all about, isn't it? It's about loving yourself, isn't it? <laughs> so uh, I didn't name the pastor and uh, and basically kicked it out to you guys and asked the question, who wrote this article? It was actually from the Ladies' Home Journal. It was from a uh, it was a couple years ago. Funny enough, I, I had heard about this article on the Internet, and so I scoured and I looked high and low, and I actually was able to get a copy of the the magazine itself. So that I can get, have the whole article, and I found it on eBay. <laughs> Do I sound like I'm obsessed? No, 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 no not me. Yeah, so I uh, found it on eBay, and I, and I actually purchased it. So this is this is the one and only copy of the Ladies' Home Journal that I own. <laughs> Everyone's going, yeah, right. I bet Rose Rose got a secret stash of Ladies' Home Journals. <laughs> Sitting in his closet somewhere in some dark corner. <laughs> oh, it's my guilty pleasure. <laughs> okay, so we'll be reading. Uh, we'll we'll be announcing that in just a little bit. But I've got some other listener email that we're going to get into today, and um, we're going to uh, do a little bit more review on Doug Paget's interview, and then we're going to be listening to part of a sermon from Keystone Church. They did a four-part sermon series. On the uh, the songs of the Beatles, yeah, and so I mean there are sermon topics. Let me let me let me pull this up so I don't mess this up because you know I'm I'm prone to messing things up. The <laughs> they they had four so- songs from the Beatles that they they did sermons on. One was called Help, and the uh, sermon was about control issues. Um, the second was called. Let it be, and it was about worry. The third was uh, called "Nothing's Going to Change My World," and this was a sermon on negativity. And then, um, sermon number four is "Can't Buy Me Love," and it's a sermon on insecurity. 
Anyone notice anything about those uh, particular four sermons? <laughs> All of the topics are pop psychology. Uh, th- those are basic pop psychology terms and phrases. And uh, we're going to listen to uh, one of them. Yeah, and I'm kind of debating between doing the negativity one or the control issues one. Well, I, I maybe I should pay, play let it be, you know, or um so I I'm debating debating on negativity and control issues because anyone who knows me knows that I'm a control freak who's negative. See, that's my big problem. I'm just a negative control freak. So, you know, maybe I really need to listen to both of these and apply the the, the life applications from them so that I could be more holy. <laughs> so we'll get to that a little bit later. All right, we got some really good listener email. And uh, first one, straight off the bat, is from a guy by the name of Doug. Not sure where Doug is from, though. And Doug writes, he says, Chris, I've been profoundly impacted by your teaching on law versus gospel. After years of hearing MacArthur's preaching on, are you sure you're a Christian? It has made me reevaluate some things, but I still have some gray areas. I do understand God's grace like never before, though. Thank you for that. I talked to my small group last night about law versus gospel using John 28 through 29. John 28 through 29, by the way, is the passage where uh, they come to him. What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus says the work of God is this, to believe in the one whom he, the father, has sent. You know, belief really is, is, you know, the work of God. And so he said most of the people in in his small group are still clinging to Copeland. Ouch. Okay, Copeland, I'm assuming this is Kenneth Copeland that we're dealing with here, and Kenneth Copeland is Word Faith teacher. He says, We all had a lively discussion, but the greatest point of contention was whether it was possible to love God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your mind and strength. They think you can. Okay, I pointed out that sin, that sin makes that impossible and that this requirement is designed to lead us to the cross, but they contend if we love God as much as humanly possible, we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And even if we sin, if our intentions are right, we still love God completely, although no one admitted to ever having accomplished this. To believe that we can't love God this way, they said, would be discouraging. So he says, uh, we we left as friends, but one guy did say that I was in left field. <laughs> <laughs> don't you be springing that gospel stuff on us and don't be acting like the law is not something that we're supposed to be keeping. Important that you understand what the proper distinctions of the law are. He says, can you give me some scriptures to use and prove our inability to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Thank you. I listen to your podcast daily. Doug, this is a fantastic question and uh, good on you for uh, bringing up the gospel and using the law lawfully in order to show our need for a savior. So uh, we're going to, let me get into my computerized Bible here. Um, and what we're going to do is we're going to take a couple, look at a couple of passages. First of all, okay, we, I, we have to understand foundationally what is, what are the commands of the law? If you were to sum them all up, how would you sum them up? Well, Christ himself sun, sums them up. Um, the greatest commandment, okay. What is the great, greatest commandment? Answer to, um, <clears throat> what is the great commandment? Hang on a second here, great. All right, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? This is Matthew 22, 
starting at verse 36. And um, so what happened in here, if we read in Matthew 22, the Pharisees heard, uh, heard that uh, Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. And so they gathered together and asked, and one of them who was a lawyer, lawyer, think, think of somebody who's an expert in the law. He says, uh, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind. And this is the great and first commandment. And he said, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Okay. So. That being the case, okay, understand, I think you got this foundationally, but you don't want to deviate from this. Even if somebody doesn't quite recognize it, stick to your guns on this. When we say love God and love your neighbor, we are doing nothing less than telling somebody to obey the entire Mosaic law. That's what we're telling them. And... (laughs) Uh, Christopher Hitchens, uh, one of those new atheists, he gets this. He's really offended by this concept that God demands compulsory love. Now, how would you know if you loved God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your strength, everything about you? How would you know you are perfectly loving God? Remember, the co- all of the commandments are summed up in love God and love your neighbor. Well, John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus simply says this. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. <laughs> How many? Hmm, would that be all of them? Okay. The objective verification and proof that we do not love God with all of our heart is the fact that we still sin. Every sin ultimately reveals and exposes a complete and utter lack of love for God. Right? And also lack of love for our neighbor. And Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, in case you think this just has to do with your actions, oh, contraire, Jesus makes it perfectly clear that sin springs from the heart. And he says that if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, that you've already committed adultery with her. Or if you say racha to your brother, you've committed murder. Right? So what happens is, is that Our objective commandment breaking is objective proof that we do not love God with all of our heart. And God doesn't grade on a curve here. Obedience has to be perfect obedience. It's not just, it's not as best as you can do. God only calls you to love him as much as you're capable of. What... Whatever your capability is, my capability may be bigger than yours and your capability may be bigger than mine. But the important thing is, is that we achieve our potential in law keeping. Does that make any sense? No. Objectively, you can say every single time I sin or you sin. We. Demonstrate 
undeniably that we do not love God with all of our heart. So it's important to keep these categories distinct. Now, you were right in pointing out, therefore, the law, the purpose of the law, the purpose of the law is to expose our sin and to drive us to Christ. Okay, do not get, do not put your trust on your law keeping, on your loving God. Now, do Christians love God? Well, actually, yeah, they do. Do they love their neighbors? Yeah, they do. Why? Because we've been given faith and faith cannot help but do such things. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's right. The law, John just wrote me a note here, says the law will save you if you can keep all of the commandments. Right. Okay. So every time you break a commandment, you prove that you don't love God and you don't love your neighbor, especially if the sin that you've committed hurts your neighbor. Ultimately, all sin is against God. Right. There's more to it, though. You need some you need a little you need a little bit more uh, help here. Romans chapter 8, there's a very interesting discussion here in Romans chapter 8. Starting in verse 5, it says this, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. To set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Literally, it's impossible for it to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Okay? By nature, our sinful flesh is at war and hostile to God. It cannot submit to God's law. Indeed, it will not do so. It cannot do so. And we Christians as Paul describes in Romans chapter 7, are practically schizophrenic. Why? Because we are declared to be righteous in Christ, and we are saints, yet we still have this body of sin that we have to deal with. So Paul says in Romans chapter 7, the things I don't want to do, I do. The things I do want to do, I don't do. Oh, what a wretched man I am. Who will... Rescue me from this body of death, this flesh, right? So your friends, Doug, made the claim. He says, to believe that we can't love God this way, they say, would be discouraging. Actually, there's a good point here, and, and that is to flip it, okay? Um, what would be really discouraging or self-deceptive, really, would be to believe that you are doing this perfectly and that somehow you don't need Christ, The good news of the gospel is is that Christ was without sin. He loved God perfectly for us, right? He loved God perfectly for us, and he loved God with all of his heart. There was one who did keep the law, Jesus Christ. And so we don't have a righteousness of our own. Let me find this in the scriptures. Righteousness. Do a word search. I'm searching for righteousness. <clears throat> Not having a righteousness of our own. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> Maybe it's of our 
There we go. I'm doing this from memory. And I'm striking out. <laughs> someone's someone's yelling at their computer screen right now going, It's this passage, Rosebro, wake up. There we go. It's Philippians chapter 3. I knew that. I was just testing all of you. <laughs> I'm getting old. All right. Listen to this. Philippians chapter 3. I know I read these passages often, but we don't. we need to hear them every day. Look out for those dogs, for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. This is Philippians chapter 3, verse 2. Now, going on to verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for such confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reasons for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, I was a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless." But whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. What is the summary of the law? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings and become like him. that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So actually, here's the deal. It's not discouraging to say that we can't love God with all of our heart. That's actually to confess and agree with the Scripture and to agree with the law. That's not discouraging. That's called confession of sins. I confess, Lord, that I do not love you with my whole heart, and I do not love my neighbor as myself. And I justly deserve your present and eternal punishment, Lord, because I break your commandments. Yeah, it, it, it is discouraging if you're trying to save yourself. <laughs> so if, if, you're, if your salvation depends in whole or in part on your law-keeping, then to say that you can't love God with all of your heart would definitely be a, a discouraging statement. Because then that's the breeze that blows the whole house of cards down. Man, you just blew my whole house of cards down. Don't you know I've been working a lifetime trying to build a ladder to heaven made out of cards? And some little breeze comes along and says, I can't love God with all my heart. Who are you? Be gone with you. So the good news is, is that Christ loved God perfectly for us. And we receive his righteousness by faith. We're covered up in the righteousness of Christ. And what happens to Christians, this is a good metaphor. If you've seen the movie The Matrix, you know, I, I don't particularly care for the second and third one. But there's something that happens to Agent Smith in the second one that's really bizarre. 
Agent Smith is is the guy who's in charge of maintaining law and order in the Matrix. He's definitely a legalist. <laughs> but what happens is, is that he's killed in the first movie. And as a result of his death, he is now, he's broken free from the Matrix, if you would. In a similar way, that's what happens to us. And I want to take you to a passage in Scripture because I know that this is going to be mind-bending for some of you. But um, allow me a, a mind-bending passage and idea here, okay? And that is when it comes to sin and it comes to loving God. See, here's the deal, is that in our baptism, something bizarre happens. Something crazy happens, okay? And it's so bizarre and so crazy that if I were to just say it, you wouldn't believe it. I have to read it for you, okay? But what happens is is that this continual cycle of the law condemning us of our sins and us being under the oppression of the law and being slaves to sin, that's all broken by Christ. And it's effective in our baptism. Let me read this for you This because this is crazy stuff. He says, what shall we say then? This is Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? That's always the question. I mean, you know you're preaching the, the gospel, right? When people go, well, is that, is that, does that mean that we can do whatever we want? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, well, no, that's not what that means. But that's immediately, why? Because we sinners think that sin is something we get to do. Right? We don't see it for what it really is, as something that binds us, something that we are enslaved to. Christ came to set us free from the law and from sin and from death and from the devil. The problem is, is that in order to be set free from sin, you have to die. Sin has no power over if you've died and been raised again. But there's only one who has, and that's Christ, right? Well, let me read this passage to you then. Keep baptism in mind here because those of you who think that baptism is only something that I do to show the world that I've uh, made a decision for Jesus. By the way, that language never occurs anywhere in the New Testament or the Old. Instead, there's something really powerful about baptism in regards to overcoming sin and, and how we live our lives in Christ. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, by no means. How can we who died to sin live in it? To which you should immediately be going, uh, uh, um, uh, when did I die to sin? <laughs> um, hell, did I miss something here, Paul? <clears throat> Let me read that sentence again. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Are you nuts? Do you not know that all of us, this is verse 3, chapter 6, verse 3, do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? This is not some symbolism going on here. We were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Jesus in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. 
we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin once uh, for, once for all, but the life he lives to uh, he lives he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Why? Because you were baptized into Christ's death and his resurrection. So here's here's this powerful thing here. This gospel is far more potent than anybody even gets. It's really, really potent. Why? Because by the gospel, we are, as Paul says in Romans chapter 10, seven, verse 17, faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. And faith is a gift from God. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. So if faith is a gift, and faith comes by hearing through the word of Christ, all the more powerful in all of this is this concept then, you know, that we are set free from sin in our baptisms. We're no longer enslaved to sin because in our baptisms we were buried with Christ and we've died to sin. It really has no power over us. Am I saying you don't sin? Well, John says, I write these things so that you may not sin. But if we sin, we have one, we have an advocate with the Father, right? So we do sin. But the real power here is in the working of the Holy Spirit, the working in the fact that Christ, in our baptism, we're buried with Christ and we're raised with Christ. Christians truly do love God and love neighbor because that's the work of God. We are created in Christ Jesus to do good works. These things flow from faith. That's why Paul, in Romans chapter 3, at the tail end of the chapter, writes these very interesting words. He says, Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Well, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. We uphold the law by faith. Which means we love God, and we love our neighbor. We can't help but do so. And so, over and again, the Christian life is one of daily repentance, daily forgiveness of sins, daily walking this out, daily abiding in Christ, daily abiding in the gospel, daily mortification of our sinful flesh, daily trusting in Christ and receiving his forgiveness. It never really moves beyond that. Not this side, not this side of the resurrection. Because ultimately our hope is just as Christ has been raised, so we too will be raised. Now I know this is mind-bending stuff. So the idea here is, is that if you think that you can make God happy with you by your naked good works, you don't have faith. And no matter how righteous and good your works seem to appear to you and to others, they're not good works. Because Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith it is impossible to please God. But... If you trust in Christ and you truly have faith, 
in your baptisms, you were buried with Christ and raised with him. Sin no longer has power over you. You're not enslaved to it anymore. In a very real sense. So you live in continual daily repentance. Never moving beyond that. Never moving beyond Christ. I know it's kind of mind-bending stuff. And I'm, I've probably confused people more than I've helped them today. <laughs> and, uh, well, I don't know. That's just kind of par for the course, I guess. All right, we're going to take a small break, and we'll be right back. If you would like to email me and basically let me know how unhelpful that was, <laughs> you can do so. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. We'll be right back. Chicago, 6 p.m. Inside Lucy Perkins' bedroom. I want to tell you my secret now. Okay. I see emergent people. In your dreams? No. When you're awake? Yeah. Emergent people like in coffee shops and cohorts? Walking around like regular people. They don't see the truth. They only see what they want to believe. How often do you see them? All the time. They're everywhere. Here's me. And you know what he does? He was. My local Christian bookstore just sells Jesus schlock. Where can I find good material? We at NewReformationPress.com are committed to providing a hand-picked selection of books and teaching materials that educate, inform, and entertain while uniquely maintaining a relentless focus on the gospel. We believe that these forgotten doctrines and their scriptural emphases can not only enrich individual Christians and revive the church, but also address the deepest needs of our culture. Discover our growing library of resources by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt of the White Horse Inn radio program, including his powerful address, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church, available exclusively at NewReformationPress.com. Or the big picture audio presentation, Bible in an Hour, by Pastor Wade Butler. Learn the center and scope of redemptive history and scripture in just one hour. And of course, be sure not to miss our selection of t-shirts, gifts, and artwork as well. NewReformationPress.com. Finally, Reformation Theology Made Accessible. All right, we're back. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. I'm Chris Rosebro. Well, talking about the law, the gospel, and this mind-bending idea that in our baptisms we were actually buried with Christ. Man, yeah, I'm... I'm to my man, that's weird. My computer keeps doing that. Ah... 
I like my new computer, but I'm not I'm not quite used to it yet. It's got some features on it that um are a little annoying. <laughs> you know what's funny is is that uh I took Bill Shears' comment. You remember Bill Shears? He's uh, Pastor Rex Quando from uh, Guts Church. In case you missed it, in uh, the sermon review that we did a couple weeks ago, Bill Shears claimed that he's not a sinner anymore. Um, <clears throat> let's let's hear this one. Hang on. Let, let me play this again for you guys. Man, he he takes he sits up on that throne and takes notice when I put a demand on his will. Ah, oh, wait. Here we go. And I and I know some of you guys are raised that. We're always sinners, even if we, even when we give our life to God. I'm not a sinner. If you'll ask me, you'll say, hey, Shear, are you a sinner? No. And I'll tell you quite simply why I'm not a sinner is because the Bible says God doesn't hear the sinner. Well, I'm telling you, God hears me. And you know what he does? He responds to my requests. Man, he, he, takes, he sits up on that throne and takes notice when I put a demand on his will. Yeah, that was a Pastor Bill Shears claiming that he's not a sinner anymore. And there's a problem with that. He's a, he's a prosperity preacher. And uh, so the Christ, Christians still sin. That's the problem. And if you don't believe me, listen to the words of our Lord. All right? Now, I know I, know I understand. I just explained to you guys that, that sin has no power over us. Because in our baptisms, you know, we are set free from the bondage, you know, that you know we were under to sin and the devil. Right? Yet, still in this side of heaven, Christianity is marked by the struggle between what Christ is doing in our lives, with the Holy, how the Holy Spirit is sanctifying us, at war with, with, uh, with our sinful flesh that still is dead set on disobeying God. Now, if you don't believe that you're still a sinner, remember, who's a sinner? Um, if I sin, would I be a sinner? You sure? Yeah. Okay, all right. Um, if I if I robbed a bank, would I be a bank robber? Yeah. Okay, okay. Just, okay, just want to check my, my terminology here. If I committed adultery, would I be an adulterer? Yeah. Okay, all right. Um, so, uh, if I murdered somebody, would I be a murderer? Oh, yeah. 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 You know, you're not giving me any fudge room here. No. So if I sin, I'm a sinner. Okay, just want to make sure we got the terminology here, because Bill Shear says that he's not a sinner anymore. And I, and I know some of you guys are raised that we're always sinners, even if even when we give our life to God. I'm not a sinner. If you'll ask me, you'll say, hey, Shear, are you a sinner? No. And I'll tell you quite simply why I'm not a sinner, because the Bible says God doesn't hear the sinner. Ugh, wrong passage. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Jesus Christ, uh, you familiar with the Lord's Prayer? Yeah, John, I know you are because, you know, you go to the same church I do. <laughs> we we actually confess our sins together. Um, all right, so uh, Lord's Prayer. Uh, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Who taught us that prayer again? Jesus, yeah, Jesus. Why would Jesus have us pray on a daily basis that to ask for forgiveness for our sins? Because we're sinners. You know, you, you get a star in your star chart for that one, John. <laughs> 
So here we got Bill Shears claiming that he's not a sinner, yet Christ tells us when we pray to pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Right? What was Jesus thinking? Did Jesus say, you know, just pray that prayer until, you know, the day when you become a Christian, then you can skip that clause. Right? No, it doesn't work that way. And I read to you the first John passage, the passage in first John. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. In fact, uh, what does first uh, John chapter one, verse 10 say that uh, if, if you claim you are without sin, you make God out to be a liar. You know, so there's some people who are coming on to the Museum of Idolatry because I put this in the Museum of Idolatry today who are defending this idea that, oh, Christians never sin anymore. And this one guy actually told me that he, I said, I said, really, you know. Well, what, what, you know, did, you haven't sinned today or yesterday or the day before? Oh, no, I haven't sinned. Not in three days. <laughs> huh. Man, some people are just so much farther down the sanctification road than I am. Because <laughs> I sinned, I sinned today. I sinned yesterday. I sent the day before and the day before. You know, in fact, based upon this trajectory that I've got going, I bet I bet I'll send tomorrow too. And see, that's the thing: Christians struggle with this concept, and I've I've t- I said this before, and I'll bring it up again. The life of a Christian is described in Latin. The Latin phrase is "simul justus et peccator," which literally means that we're simultaneously justified and sinner at the same time. That's why Paul says. The things I don't want to do, I do. The things I do want to do, I don't do. Even though just one chapter earlier, he said that we are no longer slaves to sin because we've been buried with Christ and we're raised with Christ, right? So in one sense, this is all true. It's this this paradoxical, schizophrenic way of thinking of Christianity, and it, it really is a little bit of a bummer. But we live a life of repentance. And the reality is is that non-Christians don't have this problem whatsoever, you know? When they change their ethics, most of, most of the times it's what's expedient to them. They're not really concerned with this. You know, I'm really not keeping God's law, and I'm sinning, and what am I going to do to get this under control? I just feel like I have to battle, battle, battle my sinful nature. <laughs> I don't know any non-Christians who have this struggle at all. They're pretty hip with themselves. But see, the Christian life is marked by this struggle, by this daily repentance, this daily mortifying of the flesh, this constant battle going back and forth, right? So there it is. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. What was Jesus thinking, man? Why would I need to pray that if I'm not a sinner? <laughs> what do I need forgiveness for? If, I, if, I, if I'm not sinning, then I don't need forgiveness. How funny that Jesus put the gospel into the Lord's Prayer. <laughs> the forgiveness of sins. Oh, Jesus, uh, you know, don't you understand that nobody is really interested in this forgiveness of sin, sin stuff? We just want to get on to the improvement part. Make my life better. All right, we're going to do, uh, do a little bit of work now with uh, Doug Paget's interview. Doug Paget, if you remember, a couple weeks uh, last week I interviewed Doug Paget on the radio program, and today I want to I want to take a look at what Doug Paget says about the gospel. The gospel. Doug said some, well, very interesting things. If you've read Tony Jones's latest book about the new Christians, 
I didn't realize it was a recall on the old ones. You know, <laughs> yeah. Did you guys get the letter on that recall? We're sorry, but the original Christians, you know, that we've uh, we've issued a recall, and <laughs> you can send in your old Christian here. We'll give you a new one. Um, the new Christians, aka emergent people, um, don't don't believe that you can boil the gospel down to a nutshell. <laughs> it's that it's that uh, who is that? Austin Powers character. That was it. Austin Powers. You know, I'm a nutshell. You know, this me in a nutshell. Look, yeah. Anyway, um, so this idea that you can't boil the gospel down to a nutshell. Well, Paget kind of plays off that same idea. And so, we're in this next section of the interview that we're going to review. We're going to listen carefully to uh, how Doug defines the promises of God and how he defines the gospel. Important stuff because. Um, you know, Doug is one of the major thought leaders in the emergent church movement and has a lot of a, uh, a lot of influence on people within the movement. So without any further ado, here is uh, Doug Paget's answer regarding the promises of God and how he defines the gospel. We're going to do some comparative work to see if the gospel can be distilled. You had said that uh, if it, you wouldn't have had a problem if at the top of it, rather than saying truth is absolute— if it had said something to the effect of, you know, God is going to keep his promises. Yeah. What do you believe to be the promises of God? You know? Well, I didn't exactly say I wouldn't have had a problem. I said it would have been better to me that way. Okay. Uh, well, I probably still would have struggled with the whole, you know, train business. Okay. But, um, so what, well, are the, what are those promises that you, you, you would have struggled less with? Well, well, they're, they're, I mean, there's a Bible full of them. Uh-huh. Um, what do you yeah, consider so, to be the primary and, and central promises of Scripture? I don't do that with promises. See, see, and this might be a different epistemological approach that we take. I, I don't think when you take truth, you say, well, here's the primary one and here's the secondary one. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's anything secondary about a promise of God. So so they all count. And that's that's maybe that's what you're hearing when you said you heard things from people like me and Brian and Tony and others. Um, we're talking about the narrative. It's just what's being left out. You know, I, I try to push that in the chapter on the Bible right. um, to try to say, you know, look, if you, if you memorize 300 Bible verses like I did, you know, good for me and good for you, but it's 1% of the verses in the Bible. There's 99% that you haven't memorized. And I think that's really important. I don't, I don't feel very comfortable with this idea that there are some promises of God that are, that are central and other ones that are tangential. I mean, I, if, if I heard someone saying that, uh, the first thing that would pop to my head is, well, who are you to decide which ones are primary and which ones are tangential? Mm-hmm. So I, the, the, the question itself sort of begins with a level of comfort that that I don't I don't possess. Okay, that's fair enough. Um, let me let me circle back then. Um, you know, coming back to like uh, Paul's writing uh, his epistle to the uh, Corinthians, First Corinthians, he says that he chose to know nothing among them except for Christ and Him crucified. Mm-hmm. And then in chapter fifteen, he reminds them of the gospel that he preached. Mm-hmm. Um, how how do you define the gospel? It's good news, but I mean, what's it's what's the bad news? What's the good news? I mean, how did the what's the interplay between them, and why is you know? If the gospel is a message that's important enough to be uh, passed along in the Christian tradition, and Paul, even in Galatians, says if somebody preaches a different gospel, let him be anathema. Yeah. You know, th- th- it seems to me that there there's a certain level of importance regarding. Right. Uh, well, and that's what I try to do in the whole book. Right. Is I try to explain this is what the gospel is. Okay. Right. That, but the idea that somehow that's a statement. Okay. 
is, is again, maybe it gets back to the same root of this kind of epistemological attitude that there would be a statement would be better or one part of it would be more appealing or more accurate to the, what the gospel is than another. I just don't think we should be competing one part of the, of the gospel story against another part. Okay, just pause there for a second. <clears throat> Paget here is literally saying that uh, he, he's not comfortable with taking the gospel and bringing it down to a statement. Or as Tony Jones said, the gospel in a nutshell. is It can't be boiled down to a nutshell. So how is he defining it? Let's listen. So the gospel story is, is creation and regeneration and fulfillment and reconciliation and healing and beauty. It's all of these things. The, 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 the gospel of God is, is Jesus. The gospel of God is the life of, of people who live that gospel afterward. And there are going to be a whole series of statements that are going to make that up. But to pick one or two of those statements over the others, I, first off, I think would be a misreading of what Paul was trying to get at. I mean, I think if Paul heard someone say, um, well, hey, you know, boil that, forget everything else you read, or don't worry about the rest of what Paul wrote. I'll just give you this one line, and this is really what Paul was getting at as the gospel. Um, I'm not sure he'd be comfortable with that. Um, so, so I think that the, the, the gospel is this living, beautiful, good news that always um, strikes at the heart of where someone finds themselves. So when someone um, uh, feels that, that God is there, is, is working against them to hear that they are loved by God and they are the beloved one and that, and that God loves so much that he gave his son, that rings as gospel truth. And when somebody else hears that, um, that they should not um, uh, love only those who are like them and only be kind to those who are like them, in the, like Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, but they have to love God themselves and their enemy. That that's gospel. That these are all gospel. And so, so you know, I mean, I've, I kind of get picked on sometimes by some people on the internet who who like to write blogs when when I try to argue that this, the Bible is the smallest version we should ever have of the written story. Right? Like that's, that's weird language. Smallest version we should ever have. Is there a bigger version? That's as reduced as it should get. Mm-hmm. You get any more reduced than that, and I think you're leaving out some really important pieces of this whole thing. So when I hear essentials of the gospel, I hear the entire scriptures and the life of the people who've lived that um, that 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 gospel call. So for me, the gospel is scriptures and Jesus and the Spirit active and working today and God's uh, reconciliation and, and healing and blessing of the world. That's gospel. Okay. Okay. Does the scriptures define the gospel in such broad terms that it can't be defined? I mean, ultimately, when you take Doug's answer, I felt like I was listening to a politician, you know, trying to explain whether or not they're going to give the middle class a tax cut. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. You understand what I'm saying here? The, it, it was there was lots of words, there was some biblical phrases. This idea that he doesn't want, he thinks that the Bible itself should be the smallest version, and then the you know the gospel is this thing where people you know wherever God is meeting you in your life, it's this beautiful, hope-filled. Okay. Does this does the scriptures basically 
define the gospel in such a way that we are down to a very, very, very ubiquitous, difficult to define, no boundaries, almost like a, it's like trying to describe a, uh, an enigma within a fog. You know, does it, can anyone tell me what, how he defines the gospel after listening to his answer? I've asked him pretty straight up. You know, and the answer that he gave was very um, difficult to uh, comprehend. So let's take a look at how the Bible defines the gospel. Okay. Point that I've made before and point that I'll make again and again and again and again. You can actually, according to the scriptures, boil the gospel down to a nutshell. It can be done. And the nice thing is, is that you don't have to do it. It's been done for you. Okay. Gary Habermas, who is probably one of the best theologians out there and apologists who can defend the gospel, uh, the, uh, the Christ's bodily resurrection. Guy's brilliant on this point. Points out, Gary Habermas points out that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we have in the scriptures probably one of the earliest confessions of faith, a creed, if you would, of the early Christian church. Okay? It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And let me read the prelude to this creed. It, it re- reads like a creed. It, it, it sounds like a creed. It's very creedal in its formula. And uh, let me read this to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. It says, Now I, Paul, would uh, remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. Okay. Right off the bat, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1, Paul is going to remind the Christians in Corinth of the gospel that he preached to them. Did Paul say, and now and this is the gospel that can't be defined as, is, you know, and all these things that Doug said? No, here's what he says. He says, this is the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. That's some pretty powerful gospel, right? If you hold fast to the words that I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance. Now, this is important because remember in Doug's answer, when I asked him what are the important promises, you know, are there central promises, he says, oh, well, you know, we who are we to... You know, put make one promise more important than the other, right? Those were his words. Yet Paul says, I delivered as a first importance. First importance is speak that that basically says this is central. This is mucho importante. Yeah, first. Yeah, it's not even secondly, secondly important. This is the first primary. This is first of, of first importance. Oh, man. Oh, man. Well, see, I I don't know. I mean, can the word first imply rank? You know, first. <sighs> so apparently this is first important. It's, yeah, in Greek, it's protos. Protos. It's first importance. It's prominent. It's the first thing. For I delivered as of first importance what I also received. Are you ready? Here's the creed. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. 
that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve, then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are all still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles, and last of all to the one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Gary Habermas correctly points out that 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 6 definitely follow a creedal formula. I delivered as of first importance that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. You know your Nicene Creed and your, and your Apostles' Creed. We've got this exact type of phraseology going on there. So, Doug Paget says, when it comes to the promises of God, who are we to put them into order and say one is more important than the other? The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, I deliver to you as of first importance. He makes it clear. The emergent church is hesitant to define the gospel in very specific terms, going so far as to say that it can't be boiled down to a nutshell. Paul says, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. And he defines it as Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Apparently, the Apostle Paul has no problem making it clear that the gospel, the promises of the gospel, are primary, of first importance, and defining them in such nutshell terminology that we can say Christ died for our sins. Right? That's the good news. So, one of my major concerns and problems with the emergent church is its, it, its unwillingness that isn't warranted biblically. In fact, the, the, the scriptures itself make it clear that we are to boil the gospel down to a nutshell. We can do so, and that, it is that, that the promises of the gospel are of first importance. And that through the gospel, we are being saved. We are taking our stand, and we're holding fast, right? Something completely different. So, anyway, wanted to point that out to you. All right, we're going to talk now. Are you guys ready for this? As promised, we're going to read who the winners are, uh, who the winner is. The winner is of the Name the Pastor, Name That Pastor contest. Now, I'm going to read a few emails to you from, from some people who got it right, um, and then I'll name the winner here in a second. So Justin Cornelius from uh, Buena Park, he got it right, but he's not a winner. But here's what he said. He says, my, it, here's my guess, and I hope I'm not too late. As a former member of Saddleback Church and is still recovering, shudder, I see, <laughs> and still recovering, I seem to recall Rick Warren is in love with his acrostics, whether it be peace, church, or shape. Now, I can't remember what shape acrostic stood for, but I know what it did uh, that it did show up at one point in the article. So there we go. There's my guess. It was Rick Warren who wrote the article, Learn to Love Yourself. Justin, you're spot on right. Spot on right. Now, remember, there's two qualifications. You had to be right, and you had to give the best answer. Good answer. <laughs> Good answer. Great answer. <clears throat> Hang on. Let me think. Yeah, here we go. All right. <clears throat> This one's from Matt Sim. Matt writes, he says, I suspect that the article you read from a woman's magazine was authored by none other than Rick Warren. The clincher is the use of the term shape. 
Dude, that's, I told you guys, that shape thing was the thing that is the key. Here, Warren has craftily modeled his purpose-driven you-ism after popular weight loss strategies. <laughs> He's encouraging people to find their shape, pretends to be good advice, but in uh, practice amounts to saying you figure it out and be your own standard. It is a is branded as self-discovery. Realize your talents and abilities. Ask others what they like about you. Consider your heart. Believe in yourself. But buying into this strategy will only strengthen one's self-deception. Wow. He says, Warren is, li is a likely candidate for such an intoxicating brew of pop psychology and marketing. That's a good turn of phrase there, Matt. He, he wrote more, by the way. Uh, Jack from uh, Rochester, Minnesota writes, he says, if I'm not too late in sending my thoughts on who wrote the self-love article, that's right, Learn to Love Yourself by Pastor Rick Warren. You know, I think what we could do, we should do a Marty Python's Flying Circus Church sketch uh, and, you know, and basically just read the article. I mean, it's so bad. It it it, it's, it might as well be satire. Can you imagine? I mean, we're talking about a Christian pastor who's encouraging people to learn to love themselves. My self-love is the problem, man. It's called sin, dude. Okay, he says, all right. He says, uh, okay. Having listened to your discussions on his 40 days of love, as well as having previously read The Purpose Driven Life, what a waste at, at $2.50 at a used bookstore. You know, <laughs> Jack, I'm jealous, dude, because I paid full price for my copy of The Purpose Driven Life, hardcover edition, no discounts. It was more than $2.50. I'm jealous that you only wasted two fifty. He said, I would put this right up his alley. I also wanted to let listeners from last week know not uh, know all is not lost. I heard discussing how some listeners were asking to leave for questioning the directions that the church uh, may be taking. It recently happened for us when I heard a speaker at our church bring in a name of a high-profile member of the emergent movement. However, when I brought my concerns to the pastor, he thanked me for catching that and let me know that he was certainly that, that was certainly not the direction that the church was headed. So he's got a good pastor. There are Those, those pastors still exist. So Walter Stinnett uh, from Hanover, Maryland writes, he says, the person who wrote the How to Love Yourself was Rick Warren. Correct. But his answer was a little deficient because he didn't have, <laughs> didn't, you know, this is a, quite a hefty stack. Um, Dana writes, Rick Warren, I knew it when you read shape, one of his key words. Don't know what it stands for and don't really care. Just know it's one of those, one of his million dollar words he throws around. Plus all that talk of love and no gospel has Rick Warren written all over it. <laughs> Oh, man. <clears throat> okay, now I'm going to mess up this. the name of this. Okay, Scott writes from Petoskey, uh, Michigan. He says, if I may submit my answer to your contest, who wrote that article? I am certain that Rick Warren penned the article of which you speak. Why do I believe it is Rick Warren? Quite simply, it sounds like the drivel found in his latest, in his best-selling book, A Purpose Driven Life. The first sentence of the book reads, it's not about you. But then from there, Rick goes on for many pages explaining how I need to find my purpose and suppose how I love myself as well while I'm at it. Ah, yes, the law according to Warren. That's right. 40 days of love. Learn to love yourself. All right, Jill writes, she says, am I too late? I'm sure that the pastor who wrote that article was Rick Warren, and I am sure because he mentions your shape. Big giveaway there. Mm -hmm. See, you guys are smart. You guys are catching up on this, uh, catching on this stuff. As a recovering purpose-driven aholic, <laughs> I'm so sorry. 
Do they have 12-step programs for people who are recovering from purpose-drivenism? I mean, you can't celebrate recovery because celebrate recovery is a purpose-driven um, recovery program, right? So, I mean, what do you celebrate if you're if – you, do they have 12-step programs for people who are leaving the purpose-driven movement? I just want to know. Hi, I'm Chris, and I'm a former purpose-driven guy. Hi, Chris. <laughs> Okay, as a recovering purpose-driven aholic, I want to thank you for the work that you're doing. You have been instrumental in my journey out of darkness and me religion into the marvelous light of the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, thank you very much. You're you're very welcome. All right, <clears throat> here we go. Last but not least, Andrew De Loach. He's an attorney from Ontario, California, and he writes, Am I too late? I hope not. My first reaction was it's either Osteen or Schuler. I mean, really, it could be any number of people these days with self-esteem is all the rage. But those are top dogs. I think Osteen is a bit too obvious, so I'm going to go with Schuler. No, no, no. Actually, I, this is the wrong entry. Sorry, Andrew. I read your thing here. No, it's not Schuler. It's Osteen. Okay, here it's the one. I have to blame it on him, right? Because, you know, I don't want to make myself sound older than I already am. Roseboro, how'd you put that into there? <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, Nathan from uh, he writes from Australia. He says, "Greeting from Perth in Western Australia. I just recently discovered your website and podcast after hearing you interviewed on the Narrow Mind with Gene Cook. Oh, congratulations. Um, let me see here. This is not." Uh, <laughs> I'm going to end up editing this out. The last two emails that got stuck into my pile of of, of guesses here. I'm, I'm looking at this going, uh... Okay, Roseboro, you're getting old. You're getting old. The winner, by the way, of the, uh, per, of the Name the Pastor contest, the winner of the uh, Name That Pastor in, is uh, Matt Sim. That's Matt Sim in his uh, email. So, Matt, uh, congratulations. You win a Pirate Christian Radio t-shirt. And uh, we'll take a, a break while I go try to find my brain somewhere. <laughs> Matt Sim, congratulations. Don't know where you're from, but uh, your, your email was definitely, it definitely had the best answer as to why. So, without any further ado, we're going to take a quick break. And uh, we will be right back. If you would like to email me, you can do so at uh, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's uh, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Why is it that I'm out of sorts today? Monday. Is it Monday? Monday. Yeah, technical problems with the computer. It wouldn't play the music. And now emails regarding... Oh, man. <laughs> we'll be right back. Hi, I'm Patrick Kyle, a founding partner of New Reformation Press. Just as the first Reformation rediscovered, reclaimed, and restated timeless truths from the Word of God, the mission of New Reformation Press is to reintroduce these truths to the contemporary church and culture. All of our resources are handpicked to ensure that you have the best available biblical and doctrinal materials at your fingertips to help you grasp the treasures of the Reformation 
and deepen your own understanding of Christ and His work on your behalf. Browse our website at newreformationpress.com. We offer books, CDs, downloadable MP3s, and our very own line of Reformation-themed clothing. Check out the audio presentation, Bible in an Hour. Absolutely the finest overview of the scriptures that the staff at New Reformation Press has ever heard. Also, Dr. Rod Rosenblatt's presentation, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church. A stunning 200-proof presentation of the gospel for those who have been hurt by the church and discouraged as a result of false teaching. Available exclusively through NewReformationPress.com. Again, that's NewReformationPress.com. back doing penance today <laughs> you're listening to fighting for the faith you know what's really interesting is that i when i was at willow creek one of the things i did is i visited their bookstore by the way willow creek that that campus makes saddleback look like an upstart I mean that place is outrageous, and uh, you know I've I've been to the Saddleback Bookstore and I've been to the Willow Creek Bookstore, and um, what was really interesting is that the Willow Creek Bookstore they had a pretty large section on emergent you know emergent authors they had the complete works of Rod Bell, um, they had the books by the heretic mystic Henry Nowen, and there was books there on the new monasticism. You know, embracing new monasticism, thinking, what is going on in Christianity if we're embracing neo-monasticism? You've got to be kidding me. And while I was there, there was a there was a, a guy in a monk's habit at the conference. And he had a British accent. I think it was from Ireland, though. And he was an emergent guy who's embracing this neo-monasticism. <laughs> what is going on? Uh, have we decided to head back to Rome? I mean, to Roman Catholicism? Is 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 the Protestant Reformation over? <laughs> I didn't get the memo. I, would somebody send me the memo that's been circulating that basically says the Protestant Reformation is over and we've actually all decided to head back to Roman Catholicism? I'm <laughs> Hello? Anyway... All right. Without any further ado, we're going to dive into a uh, we're going to dive into a, a, a sermon here, a pop psychology issue. And now uh, we, we have to make a decision: Are we going to do either control issues or negativity? I think we should do control issues, don't you? Better for you. Yeah, it's better for me because I'm such a control freak. So um, <laughs> anyway, this is from Keystone Church. They're in Texas somewhere. And the name of the, uh, it, this is from the Beatles, this is a, a sermon based upon the Beatles song Help, and it's about control issues, and uh, we'll kind of dive in and find out, you know, what this, I mean, is the gospel here? What are we going to hear? Law, gospel? Are we going to hear Christ and him crucified? Um, I don't know any passages of scripture that deal directly with control issues. Yeah, maybe, hey, maybe Ringo will make an appearance in this uh, sermon. I don't know. So, anyway, here we go from Keystone Church. Walking into the Department of Motor Vehicles. Hang on a second, here we go. Welcome to the Keystone Church Podcast. 
Each week, you'll be able to listen to Brandon's most recent message. Okay. For more info about Keystone Church, rite of passage. You know, there are different rites of passage that we all experience. I remember probably my first rite of passage was the, the uh, incredible privilege of going trout fishing with my dad in the Smoky Mountains. I mean, it's current. And, and so as a little bitty tyke, I could not go. And I'd watch my, my older brothers just go in the early mornings. And I'd cry my little eyes out. The fact that I was crying was a sign that I was not ready to go. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, I remember when he finally took me, and it was just incredible. Another rite of passage uh, was when I was about 16 years old. And I'd say most of us in this room have probably crossed this rite of passage. 16 years old, I had had my driver's permit. And today was the day I was going to get my driver's license. It was a big day. It was a big day. And I remember walking into the Department of Motor Vehicles. And walking in like this, 16-year-old, you know, I'm feeling it all. But deep inside, I'm like, help me, help me. You know, I'm scared to death. And I walk in and I took the computer test first. I'm thinking they're going to trick me with all these trick questions and everything. But I walked up and I'm just, I nailed it. I aced the computer test. It was easy. I nailed it. Awesome. Then I walked out of there and I, I went to the family Ford Taurus. I walked up to the family Ford Taurus, which was my chariot for many years. And I walked into that, and I'm waiting for the driver instructor to come out. And he walks out, and, and he gets in the, in the seat next to me. And this guy, he's got the, the glasses on the edge of his nose, and he has this monster, monster clipboard. And if you sense I'm being a little negative, I do have issues with this man. We'll get to in a moment. Now, wait a second. He's complaining about this guy, but... In his sermon two weeks from now, he talks about being negative and negativity and how that's off the table because um, Scripture says, do everything without complaining. And he's complaining about this guy. I, I kid you not. Yeah, if, if you guys, go to Keystone Church, their website, and take a look at the sermon on negativity. But he has this monster clipboard. I look over to the side, and, and my parents are over on the sidewalk going, <laughs> don't kill yourself. And, uh, and so we set out. And I'm in the car, and here we go. And I drive out, and, and I do the right turns, and I do the blinkers just right. And I even parallel park. I mean, I nailed the parallel parking. After I nailed the parallel parking, I was like, done. I got it. Because that was the hardest part. I nailed the parallel parking and I did the on-ramp, the off-ramp, and I did it all. And we get back to the, uh, the, to, the, uh, to the DMV and we go into the parking lot and I'm pulling in and it's over. It's over. And I pull into the DMV. I'm in the parking lot and all of a sudden this little girl was able to get away from her mother, which I can't imagine that. But a little girl was able to get away from her mother and she ran right out in front of the family Ford Taurus. And I slammed on the brakes. All of this happened at once. Slam on the brakes, put my hand on the wheel. Well, my hands were already on the wheel, but I tightened them up and, and I'm like this. And then at the same time, the instructor reaches over and grabs the wheel of my car. Now, to grab the wheel of someone else's car when they are driving, that is just a little bit worse than changing the channel when you're sitting in the passenger seat. I mean, that is sacred space. You don't go there. You do not go there. That is sacred. 
And so in my 16-year-old rebellious voice, I turned to him and I said, Dude, I got it. I don't know why he felt the need to fail me, but uh, he did. And I went back to my friends. They're like, okay, Brandon, where are we going? Where are you taking us? And I'm like, Linus, nowhere. (laughs) But, you know, sometimes in life we feel just like that. We feel like somebody's always grabbing the wheel and they've invaded some sacred space. We feel like that people are always trying to grab some kind of control over us or perhaps... You're the one who feels the need that when life seems a little out of control, you feel the need to go grab the wheel and get control. Today we're talking about control issues. Okay, four minutes, 40 seconds into the sermon. And so far he's been preaching about himself. Um... I'm a little confused here as to how this is a biblical topic. Let's see if uh, you can pull that one out of the fire. See if you can grab the wheel here and steer us towards the Bible. We're talking about how it is so common in our culture to wrestle with these control issues, to be a control freak, a control freak. Now, how do you know? How do you know if you're a control freak? What's the difference between being a control freak and I'm just responsible? What's the difference between a control freak and Brandon? I just get things done. What's the difference? Is there an 11th commandment that I missed? Let's see. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Um, yeah, you know, we've got to walk through those 10 commandments here. You know, I'll honor your father and mother. Uh, do not. Bear false witness, do not murder, do not steal, do not be a control freak. Is that in there? Pull pull Luther's catechism. Okay, you got Luther's small catechism. Okay, we're we're reviewing here the objective Ten Commandments here. Remember the Sabbath day, honor your father and mother, not murder, adultery, steal, false testimony, covet... Have no other gods, not misuse the name of the Lord. I don't see anything about being a control freak. Maybe Luther's wrong. You know, maybe the ten, maybe there's a ten, there's an eleventh commandment, and we just don't know it. Okay, is being is this sinful behavior or just obnoxious behavior? I'm serious. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm a control freak. Well. Let's talk about it for a second. What are the symptoms of a control freak? How do I know if I am a control freak? I have control issues. Well, if you are a control freak, it may be tempting for you when you are even in over your head. When you're in over your head with finances or, or you've got, dug yourself a hole that you can't quite seem to get out of, you resist help. You resist help. You don't want it. You might be a control freak. You might be a control freak. If when other people are living their lives and making life choices that are different than your choices, it just bothers you. It just bothers you. You know, it really bothers me that she bought that, those purple shoes. I can't believe, I can't, oh, I would have never bought purple shoes. What is he talking about? (laughs) 
uh, okay, this is a sermon, guys, at a Christian church. I mean, it's got to be Christian because it's at a Christian church, right? And that may be a neighbor down the road, down the street, who in their parenting styles, they didn't, they're not growing kids God's way. They're not following the pages of the book the way you do. And you look over at them and the way that they're raising their kids, it just bugs you. Or maybe it's somebody that, that is a friend of yours, or maybe it's someone at work that you see them making financial decisions. And the way that they manage their money is totally different than the way that you manage yours. And it just bugs you. You think about it, you come home, you I can't believe he did. Or maybe it's somebody that is in your career career and you see them climbing up the corporate ladder. They are blue flaming it. They are, they're going up the corporate ladder and they're coming up the corporate ladder and they're doing it in a different way than you are climbing steadily up the ladder. They have a different set of personality gifts. They have a different set of skills and they're using those skills and they're doing it in a different way. And it bugs you. Maybe you are a mother-in-law and that daughter-in-law She's cooking that dish a little different than the way you cook it. And doggone it, he likes it better. And that bugs you because possibly, whoa. Why is this funny? Oh, I, I don't understand why it is because I'm a control freak. Ay, 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 ay. Okay, um, seven minutes, four seconds into the sermon. Um, is... is my question is, will I go to hell if I'm a control freak? I didn't hear our empty nesters laughing on that one, okay? <laughs> wow. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's because we wrestle with control <laughs> issues. Are you inspecting? I'm starting to get anger issues. I can feel it. Are you pushy? Do you inject yourself into other people's projects and other people's adventures? Do you always inject yourself? I would never do that. Do you go to such extremes to make sure that nothing bad happens to you or those that you love? You go to such extremes to make sure that nobody that you, that you love or you yourself get hurt, that you cross the line into being overprotective, applying pressure. You do that. Do you today... Right now, right now, you're saying to yourself, who does he think he is telling me what to do? I'm out of here. You probably have control issues right now. Who's going to tell me what to do? You know, we all wrestle with it. And I have to confess, I have to confess that even right now for this series, this topic is probably my number one topic. I'm a high drive type of guy. I love the challenge of doing something big and I love to move forward. And, and it, this is one of my challenges is control issues. And some of us, as I walk through the laundry list of some of the symptoms, this is by far not an exhaustive list, but as we talk about some of these symptoms, boy, it was fun to watch you at all three services, people elbowing each other and oh, <laughs> that's him, man. Keep it up. It's him. It's him. It's her, dude. Oh, she's killing me. It's her. <laughs> <laughs> um, did he get that list of symptoms from the Bible? Isn't the job of a pastor to preach God's word? I, I've read that in the scripture, but, you know, I got to be careful because if I bring it up the wrong way, then I'm just having control issues because I'm trying to inflict the way I want things done on him and his church. I'm just 
being negative and judgmental. And I, I have, you know, this, this is what the Holy Spirit led him to preach. And who am I to judge? We're laughing and we're laughing, but I want you to know control issues, control issues are very dangerous. They're very, very dangerous. Will they send me to hell? How dangerous are they, Pastor Thomas? And it can be funny, but for some of us, we're not laughing because we've crossed the line from humorous (laughs) to where it's serious and it's wrecking some of the relationships in our lives. Does he have a license to practice psychology? I'm curious. You know, I just want to know. I mean, does he have a license to be practicing group therapy like this? I mean, if we sent the psychology board there, would they have him arrested for practicing psychology without a license? Perhaps you live in a home. You're not the control freak. You live in a home where you're kind of like the mouse in the kingdom of the lion. And your job is just to be invisible and to get out of the way. And that can only last for so long as you quietly endure all of the control issues because you don't have honest, open channels of communication. You're not sharing your true heart, your true feelings. You're not being honest with how you feel. You're just taking it and taking it. And under the surface, our experience at Keystone Church, as many of you have come here after the atomic bomb went off and the mouse all of a sudden got their roar. And the lion's like, whoa, where did that come from? I'm kind of going that way, too. Whoa, where did this stuff come from? Because so far, we're nowhere near the nine minutes, 55 seconds into this sermon. And um, God's word hasn't made a single appearance. You know, Lutheran church, um, many Lutheran churches, when they do a sermon, I mean, the sermons are only like 15, 20 minutes max. You know, if if you haven't brought God's word in by the nine minute fifty five second mark, um, dude, the the sermon should be winding down by now. And it's because under the surface we've had bad communication. We haven't been honest with our emotions, and all of a sudden the bomb goes off, and we're dealing with conflict that could destroy a relationship. Yeah, it's, it's so terrible. But um, that's great and all, but. Um, what does this have to do with the Bible, with Christ, with sin, with what, what Christ has done for us on the cross, of of how we live out the gospel in our lives, of how faith... Uh, nothing. And that could be with parenting. That could be with spouse. It could be with career. It is incredibly dangerous. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Is- All right, the Bible has now made an appearance. Luke chapter 9. Let me make sure I get there. Luke chapter 9. I did not know this was the control freak passage. All right, let's 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 hear what uh, he has to say. <laughs> yep, yep. John, that's a good point. John just wrote me a note. He says, maybe I go to church for the wrong reason. You know, I go there to receive God's word, forgiveness of sins, the sacraments. <laughs> what was I thinking? <sighs> yeah. All right, let, let me back this up just a second here. Yeah, let's, we've got to hear his uh, passage here. It could be with career. It is incredibly dangerous. Luke chapter 9, verse 23, it says it this way. Verse 23. At least it's a gospel reading. Oh, okay. Well, here it is. This, let me read it to you in the ESV. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. 
so this has to do as the antidote for control issues. All right, let's, let's hear him out. Jesus said to the crowd, Hey, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, your control-driven ways, take up your cross daily, and follow me. Uh, what? <laughs> what translation is he reading? <laughs> Let's play that again. We're, we're, I got to look in the Greek while he's reading the... What on earth? It is incredibly dangerous. Luke chapter 9, verse 23, it says it this way. Jesus said to the crowd, Hey, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, your control-driven ways, take up your cross daily, and follow me. Okay, let's see here. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Anything about control-driven ways? Selfish ways? I get the feeling he stuck that in there. You know, I've got a sneaking suspicion that might be the message paraphrase. You know, let's... let's, I'll, I'll get the tape rolling here... Yeah, there's a flag on the play, by the way, folks. I should bring in a whistle. It's a ba- no, that sounds like scripture twisting to me. Yeah, that. What? <laughs> I I'm gonna check to see if it's in the message because the message is online. So let, let's let's continue. Now, now focus in here. But if you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But to give up your life for my sake, you will save it. What did he just say? Danger. If you're trying to control the outcome of your life, if you're trying to totally control all of the outcomes and all of the, the, all of the issues of your life, if you have control issues, you will lose your life. Uh, Brandon, um, that's not what the passage actually says. Um, man, 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 man. This is, this is really messed up. Um, Luke nine twenty three. Let me read it for you from the message. Then he told them what they could expect. Anyone who intends to come after me has to let uh, let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat. I am. <laughs> Don't run away from it, but embrace it. Follow me, and I'll show you how. Self help is no self at all. Self sacrifice is the way. This is from the message. This is terrible stuff. Uh, man. He's not even reading the para- the message paraphrase. Folks, um <clears throat> we've uh this is definitely a foul. I, I have to blow the whistle and and give him uh, how many how many yard penalty for this thing? This is definitely at least a 15-20 yard penalty on this play. I mean, he just completely mangled God's word and made it say something that it don't say. And he's actually exegeting whatever bizarre translation he's given for himself. Let's go back and listen to that again. And uh, Any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, your control-driven ways, take up your cross daily, and follow me. Now, now focus in here. But if you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But to give up your life for my sake, you will save it. What did he just say? Danger. 
If you're trying to control the outcome of your life, if you're trying to totally control all of the outcomes and all of the, the, all of the issues of your life, if you have control issues, you will lose your life. All right, there it is. If you have control issues, you're going to lose your life. Um, let me read it again in context. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But uh, whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Any pop psychology in, in that? No, no. All right, let's continue. And some of us, we're just like like the ship in the movie Titanic or some of those other cruise line ships in those kind of movies where every time you see those big old ships from back in the day, you see those ships. And in the heart of the ship, there are all of these guys that are, they're all greased up and dirty and muscular. I mean, you know, two guns and a six pack and they are just shoveling the coal into the furnace, shoveling the coal into the furnace, shoveling. And sometimes they'll even, oh, 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 you know, and they're, you know, they're, it's kind of like, that's where life is happening. You know, they're playing their music and they're, and they're hanging out and they're having fun, but they're working hard. And that is where the ship gets its fuel to move forward. These monster sized ships are getting their fuel in the heart of the ship as the fuel is being shoveled into the furnace and the ship is moving forward. But like the movie Titanic, as the ship is getting its fuel and it is moving forward, it is moving forward to a giant mistake. It is moving forward to a giant rock of ruin. And for some of us in this room, we don't take our control, our controlling ways too seriously because quite frankly, our lives are moving forward. I mean, Brandon, the way that I've been doing this thing, I mean, my little checklist and my get it done thing and me taking control has made my career what it is today. I mean, it's working for me. So you can get up there and you can talk, 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 talk. But it's working for me, man. Or maybe in your home. Why do I feel like this sermon's going to end with that, uh, that popular song, uh, Jesus Take the Wheel? <laughs> oh, man. Brandon, uh, Exhibit A, look at these well-behaved children. They're not misbehaving. They're sitting perfect. They're doing all of this. And you know what? I want you to know this is working for me and your ship may be moving forward for a period of time. But I want you to know if your ship is being fueled by fear and a lack of trust, you are headed to a rock of ruin. And those are the two elements that I see most often, most often fueling the control freak. It is fear and it is a lack of trust. Okay, this is great group therapy, Brandon. Um, what does this have to do with scriptures? I mean, you've read a verse, and it, at this point, there was a penalty on the play because you completely mangled the passage, made it say something it didn't say. How is this a Christian sermon again? Jesus, take the wheel. Being shoveled into the furnace of our lives. You wrestle with fear. This is the root. You wrestle with distrust. This is the root. And think about it. Trust, as we've said often here at Keystone Church, trust is the foundation 
of every great relationship. When you lose trust, that relationship is headed toward the rock of ruin. But sometimes when we wrestle with control issues, we are wrestling truly with trust. We're wrestling with trusting others. And, and yesterday morning at the men's leadership breakfast, which was awesome at Dallas Cowboys Golf Club, at the men's breakfast, we had guys submit anonymous questions for a panel. And one of the, a couple of the questions actually was like, how can I help my wife who wrestles with trusting men? Because she's been incredibly disappointed and whenever she was a kid by her dad. Got to stop there for a second. They're at a men's prayer breakfast, which is supposedly a church function, right? And somebody sends an anonymous question, how do I deal with, how, how do I help my wife who has trust issues with men? I would never ask my pastor this question. And you know why? Because he's not qualified to answer it. I'm sorry, but I don't go to the Tire and Lube Express at Walmart and ask them to help me out with my, my, you know, my gastrointestinal problems. That doesn't make any sense. When you've got a problem, you know, maybe you have a neurological disorder. Do you go and, and, and talk to a psychologist about a physical problem? No, you go to a doctor. Okay. Let's get these categories right here. Are you ready? Pastors are supposed to preach God's word. Okay. God's word. They're supposed to be experts in God's word. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Now mechanics are supposed to be experts in fixing cars, right? They're trained to do that. See, pastors are supposed to be trained in God's word. Mechanics are trained to fix cars psychologists they're trained in how to me- how to help all the people who are messed up with their emotional and psychological problems right okay now i understand and they're trained to do that trained okay now i don't go to my psychologists with theological questions nor should you go to your pastor with a psychological problem I'm sorry, but when did Christian pastors become psychologists? Okay, this doesn't make any sense to me at all. I I feel like I'm listening to an episode of The Twilight Zone. She wrestles with trusting men. And I want you to know that's something that we've heard a lot here at Keystone Church is where the seeds of distrust have been sown in some of us at a very young age. Authority figures in our lives who we're supposed to trust with all of our heart completely let you down and maybe even hurt you. And so it's very, very difficult for us to just let go of trust and just let go a hundred percent and just let someone just be a hundred percent accepted in our lives because we understand that whenever you get too close, that's when people let you down. And so it's very difficult to trust, but trust is the foundation of every great relationship. Proverbs three, five, God says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do, and he will show you which path to take. What's he saying there? Um, okay, trust issues here and now. He's, he, you notice he's proof texting, by the way. We're just taking verses out of context and stringing them together. You know, Notice he hasn't begun with God's word to teach us what God's word tells us. 
He's begun with his own psychobabble control issues, group therapy concepts, and now he's going to find verses to kind of put some biblical under, underpinning for his completely pagan sermon topic. If you want the ship of your life to cruise forward toward life, you've got to trust. You have to shovel trust into the furnace of your life to avoid the rock of ruin that is out there. Oh, man. <laughs> this metaphor is bugging me. Shovel it with trust. Yeah, he's shoveling it all right. He's not shoveling coal, though. Not only that, but some of us, we are feeding the fuel, the furnace of our lives with fear. Why can't you feed these Christians God's word with, you know, that's what you're supposed to do. <sighs> We have control issues because we're afraid. We're afraid of, of something hurting. We're afraid of something hurting. Maybe he has control issues because he feels like he should be in control and decide what Christians need to hear instead of God. Doesn't that count as a control issue? I mean, Pastor Brandon, I mean, shouldn't you let go of your control issues and let God's word do what it's supposed to do and do what you were told to do? And that is preach God's word in season and out of season? Hurting those that we love and we try to control. We try to keep them from experiencing the same mistakes we made. You're trying to keep people from experiencing Christ because you're not preaching his word. And so we tend to over inspect and we tend to over control. And we, we have these control issues because really we're, we love them and we're just fearful. But fear is no foundation for a relationship. We have nothing to fear but fear itself. Thank you. You may be ruling your house with fear. And I want people to fear me. Fear me. Fear me. I'm a control freak. And those kids may be totally obedient out of a relationship with fear because they know what's coming. That's right. They get out of line. We're going to swat them like a fly. They know what's coming. And that may be physical or it may even be not even having to be physical. You're like... You know, you've struck the fear of God that they're going to be cut off emotionally the second they cross the line. And they That's right. We, we ostracize and we send them to their room and then we shun them. They live in this sense of fear. And I want you to know that is headed toward a rock of ruin. Oh, no, not a rock of ruin. Gasp, not that. Please, anything but the rock of ruin. You may have your preschoolers under control, but I'm telling you, you're about to see what happens when you when fear is the foundation of your home. And it ain't pretty. Wait a second, didn't God say that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom? Ooh, what does he do with that one? Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. When you are fueling your life with these unholy elements. Do you even know what holy is? Come on. You're not preaching from God's word. Isn't that what somebody who's called to preach the holy word supposed to do? You may have a great career. Your ship may be moving forward. You may have an obedient home. You may, the relationships may seem to all be perfect and the house is neat and everything seems right on the surface, but you are headed toward a major rock of ruin. That's right. You're headed towards a rock of ruin if when we look inside of your dresser drawer, we find out that all of your socks and underwear are color coordinated. Do you know that that is a sign of a control freak? That if we go into your closet and we don't see piles of dirty laundry, but instead see a meticulously clean house where every shirt is is ironed and 
and starched and hanging lovely from the closet door that you are heading for a rock of ruin. You're not shoveling the right things into your boiler of life and your cruise ship is going to hit a rock or, a, or an iceberg and sink just like the Titanic. Eventually, the people in your life, they walk on eggshells because they're afraid of of stepping on your toes. They're afraid. They, they walk with fear. Some of us, your kids are about to totally walk away because they're about to find a relationship with someone else, maybe it's friends or whatever, that seems to be totally accepting, though it may not be, but on the surface it seems totally accepting, and they're going to run to that as fast as they can. Brandon, I have a question for you. You know, Brandon Thomas is the pastor here. Just Brandon, just got a simple question. Did you, you know, you're from Texas. I'm, it's, I can hear the little twang going on in your voice there. Did you actually apply for the Dr. Phil position and did he win this over? Did you audition for that show? I mean, maybe what we're experiencing here is some, some jealousy issues. You know, you were jealous because you applied for Dr. Phil's position. You wanted to have your own national pop psychology <laughs> show and Dr. Phil got it instead of you. You know, I understand, you know, that kind of letdown can be really difficult to deal with. And, and you know, but you really shouldn't take it out on the people in your church. You know, if if you really want to pursue the whole psychology thing and be famous and on television and give psychology advice to other people, maybe you can start off, on, you know, on a radio show somewhere and work your way up. But, but, you know, this fear and this bitterness that you have that you didn't actually, you know, get that gig is, is really starting to grate on us. Because they're searching for freedom, searching for a taste of some kind of freedom. I'm telling you, the rock is coming. And it's dangerous. So while we laugh and, oh, that's him, it's serious. It's serious. You could actually, while you're trying to build your life, you could actually be losing your life. While you're trying to build this life with control and everything's perfect and I got it right, you may be in the process of actually sabotaging your own efforts to build your life. Oh, now I'm afraid of myself. All this time I think I'm doing good things. Oh, wait, wait, I'm actually destroying... <sighs> Brandon, the Bible says that a pastor is to preach the word. It would be far better to put the pop psychology books away, stop watching Dr. Phil and Oprah, and open up the book. You know, start at the beginning of a book. You, can, you know, a good one would be like Romans. That would be a good place for you to start. And begin at the beginning of a chapter and start working your way through it. And, you know, if there's something that comes up that you're not sure what it means, they have these things called commentaries that can help you with interpreting some of those tougher passages and teach your people what the Bible actually says and what it actually means and feed the sheep that God has given you with God's word because that's what Christ said to do. I mean, are you willing, Brandon, to put away these control issues and let God's word be in control instead of you? Are you willing, Brandon? Are you willing? You know, because you're headed towards a rock of ruin. You know, and in in your particular case, got to remember that Hebrews says that pastors and teachers are going to be judged for what they teach. And since you're not teaching God's word, you know, that rock of ruin for you could be a pretty severe eternal punishment. And we would hate to see that happen to you. So, Brandon, would you put away your control and would you let God, the Holy Spirit, be in control? Would you put away your methods and employ the methods that God has laid out for you to do? That's really an important thing. And that's really the point that I think we should leave you with today.
<laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> that was worse the second time. <laughs> yeah, I, I I have to pre-screen these things ahead of time. Anyway, that's our program for today. If you would like to email me and let me know about your control issues, please, you know, I, I'm not a psychologist and I don't play one on the radio. I will be sure to ignore those and um, basically say I'm not qualified to answer, but you know maybe I can put you in touch with a friend of mine who's actually trained in these things. Anyway, email me, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Until next time, boy, I'm glad this weird Monday's show is over. That, eclectic and bizarre is the only way I can describe today's program. So anyway, until next time, God bless you. Thank you.